Welcome to the herd and thanks for listening. We're happy to help you have informed conversations with your healthcare providers. But please do not treat anything we say in this or any of our episodes as medical advice. Even when the guests are physicians, they're not your physician. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating, and follow, and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Meet Your Herdmates Sodcast. I am honored and pleased to have as today's guest, Gary Taubes. Thank you, Gary, for joining us. Peter, thank you for having me. The last time I tried to introduce you in public, I really um, stepped all over myself doing it. Um, I think many people should already be familiar with you, but why don't you just give us how you would introduce yourself if you had the chance in some sort of social gathering? Uh, okay, uh, investigative science and health journalist who's been studying uh, the field of uh, obesity, diabetes, and chronic associated chronic diseases for the past 20 years. I've written now four books on the subject, and uh, my initial interest was good science and bad science, and my conclusion, regrettably, is that the nutrition, obesity, chronic disease research has been doing more bad science than good, and in my books, I have tried as best as a journalist can to rectify this problem. Um, as, as you recognized over my uh, left shoulder, um, no, that would be over my right shoulder, right shoulder. Uh, are uh, three of your books. And your latest book is right here, The Case for Keto. Uh, all of the books, I, for what it's worth, I recommend unreservedly. Um, as one person that I spoke to said, um, please buy his books. You don't have to read them, but please buy them. Um, that's the most important thing. Um, but I, I would say on a personal level, please read them because I think there's important information in there for everyone to read. Um, but you didn't start out wanting to be studying nutrition or human health. No, okay. So short story, I was a physics major in college, not a very good one. Um, went off into, got an engineering degree and a journalism degree, and then got a job as a science writer. I wanted to be an investigative reporter, but uh, the only job I could get in 1980 um, in New York City was as a science journalist because of my science background. So I started off working for the magazine Discover, I realized while doing it that there's some pretty shoddy science out there and that somebody who has an investigative train of mind who's skeptical and asks good questions can, you know, have a fruitful career. Uh, my first book, I went off to live at the, the big physics laboratory outside Geneva, Switzerland called CERN, the Center for European Nuclear Research. And uh, I thought I was gonna be following a great breakthrough in physics. Uh, physicists I knew very well had claimed that he was on to the biggest breakthrough in physics in uh, 40 years. And I ended up, uh, so I was embedded, today we'd say I was embedded with the physicists. And over the course of 10 months, I watched them realize how they had screwed up. And 
do the hard work necessary to understand how they had screwed up and then watched and listened while the principal investigator of this group, who by then had won the Nobel Prize, uh, told these people that they really shouldn't publish that they had screwed up because if it should turn out down the line that the particles they claimed to have existed really did, they might still take credit for it. So I ended up writing an expose called Nobel Dreams, Power, Deceit, and the Ultimate Experiment. And um, that's what I had witnessed. There was no way to get around it. And I became obsessed with this question of how hard it was to do science right and how easy it is to get the wrong answer. And while I had been writing that first book, Nobel Dreams, I had been mentored by some of the best experimental scientists in the world. It turned out that a lot of the physicists in the world didn't really like this fellow who ran this experiment because he had made plenty of mistakes in the past and they were happy to explain to me in excruciating detail if necessary why he had made those mistakes. So I was getting an education in how to do science right, how to think critically about research projects and experiments. Uh, my second, well, when I came back to New York, went back to work as a scientist, I continued to do, examine this issue of how easy it is to get the wrong answer in science and a series of exposés. And then my second book was on this great scientific fiasco of the mid 20th century called Cold Fusion. And I became obsessed with it as I often do. and spent three years, interviewed 300 researchers and administrators, and was determined not to stop reporting it until I really understood exactly what had happened and why. And again, while I was doing it, I was being mentored by very good experimental researchers who were also fascinated by this subject. I would say the best experimentalists in the world. So that book was called Bad Science came out in 1993. And when I was done with it, uh, I had a lot of friends and uh, sort of supporters in the physics community who said, if you're interested in bad science, you should see the stuff in public health. It's terrible. So in the early 90s, I moved into public health, particularly the field of observational epidemiology. And um, the science was as bad as they had. Everything I had learned in the nine years previously about how rigorously and methodically and skeptically and critically you had to approach the questions you were asking in order not to be fooled. It turned out in public health and uh, particularly this field of epidemiology, it's so hard to do that they had decided all these checks and balances and rigor and, and, and critical method were luxuries that they couldn't afford. Hmm. So they could do sloppy, sort of uh, shallow scientific investigations and believe they had believed that they could believe they had found something meaningful because that was the best they could do. That was the explanation. This is the best we could do. Therefore, we're going to assume that we've established. Take a knowledge. leap of faith. Take a leap of faith. And then in the late 90s, I stumbled into nutrition um, serendipitously and uh, I believe the conventional wisdom 100%. I was had no bias about who was right and who was wrong. I just thought I understood good science and bad science. And uh, the nutrition science was terrible. And the obesity research is equally bad. 
So that's my books have attempted to document that. And as I move further and further in, this latest book is more about the practical applications of how we of understanding what went wrong. But and with a bit of a personal approach to this book that was absent the last three. Yeah, I've always believed in the past that it was best to keep myself out of that. But in this case, because I'm talking about. Uh, so there's this sort of fundamental phenomena in the diet world where we have a population that's growing ever more obese and diabetic. And we're taught that the way to deal with that is to, well, so you get obese because you consume more calories than you expend and you, the diabetes is driven by the obesity. So the way to fix all this is to eat less and exercise more, create a negative caloric balance. That's a story. It's supposed to be based on the laws of physics. That's the explanation for it. I was interviewing some very high profile researchers last winter for a story that still hasn't seen the light of day. And one of them, one of the leading uh, physiologists in the world who studies fat metabolism in Boston said to me, um, you know, it's, it, this is the laws of physics. If you understand physics, that's all you need to know. You eat less, exercise more. Um, that's not what the laws of physics say. And, um, anyway, so that was it. The, uh, mm-hmm. when you're trying to convince people, when you're arguing that the scientists have made a mistake, that the consensus of opinion is wrong, that you should believe a minority perspective rather than the huge consensus, which exists in the obesity research field. You need some very compelling evidence to begin to think otherwise. So for instance, physicians, and I interviewed 120 physicians plus physicians for this book, The Case for Keto. Um, these physicians all, you know, they grew up, they, were, they, they went to medical school helping to make, hoping to make people healthy. And then as they've, they've advanced in their careers in the 21st century, their waiting rooms have filled up with, with obese and diabetic individuals. We have these epidemics going on, like hospitals are full of COVID patients now until February 2020. If you practiced family medicine or internal medicine, your waiting rooms were full of obese and diabetic pre-diabetic individuals, hypertensive, you stop making people healthy, you manage their chronic diseases. And if you give them diet advice and they don't get thinner and it doesn't reverse their diabetes, you assume that's because they're not listening to you and they don't follow your advice. That's a natural assumption. Your advice is right. Or they're lying. They're telling you they're following your advice, but they're not. Then these doctors start getting heavier themselves. So they start getting fatter. You know, when I was younger, through my 30s, I've always been an athlete. I've always worked out a lot. You know, you hit 30, I start gaining two pounds a year. You assume you're doing the best you can. You follow the conventional wisdom. But when it's you that's having this problem, you can no longer write off the explanation as they're not listening to me. <laughs> now you start asking the question, maybe the conventional wisdom is wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And because of the internet, you don't have to buy diet books anymore. You just start searching for alternative explanations. A lot of these 
physicians tried vegetarian and vegan diets. Uh, it's a natural thing to try in the 21st century. And they didn't get thinner and their diabetes or their pre-diabetes didn't improve. We were all on low fat diets to begin with because that's what we were told to eat. Eventually you stumble on these low carbohydrate, high fat ketogenic diets. And the observation that allows you to question the conventional wisdom is that you eat this way and you get healthy. So now you're eating a high fat diet that tends to be rich in animal sourced foods. It's rich in saturated fat. That's the exact opposite of everything you've been told on top of it. You're not calorie restricting. You're not actively trying to eat less. You're eating as much as you want and you get healthy, meaning the excess fat goes away. If you're pre-diabetic or diabetic, your blood sugar comes under control. If you're hypertensive or your blood pressure is high, your blood pressure comes down. These are all sort of well accepted, now well accepted uh, sequelae of restricting carbohydrates. Hmm. So one of the reasons I discuss this personally is because I had that experience too. I did this as an experiment 20 years ago. Um, every single one of these physicians had some version of that. Malcolm Gladwell, when he wrote about this subject, actually in 1998, he kind of made fun of this. He called it the conversion experience. And he said, you can't trust anybody. It's, it's part of, he implied that it was part of the sales job of the diet book doctor. Like, I'm going to tell you this happened to me so I could sell it. But the fact is, it does happen to people. Um, all science begins with... Um, all science begins with an observation that is contrary to expectations. And then that observation generates a hypothesis. So our expectation is that in order to get thinner, we have to eat less and exercise more. And if we eat as much as we want of a high fat diet, high saturated fat diet, we will not only get fatter because we're eating as much as we want, but we will, our heart disease risk factors will worsen. That's yeah. the conventional hypothesis. And then you eat this way and the exact opposite happens. Yeah, I, I, I is it too much to ask that when you mention the discipline nutrition that you tack human nutrition in front of it? Because I wanna make the case that animal nutrition is a functional scientific discipline as compared um, to human nutrition. And I think you can make that case. So one of the, so what makes a functional science, right? Science can be boiled down to, and has been boiled down the scientific method, the hypothesis and test. So you get a hypothesis and you can test it. That what I've just been describing is the individual, um, manifestation of hypothesis and test. My hypothesis is if I eat a high fat diet and as much as I want of it, I'm gonna get fatter and my heart disease risk factors are gonna get worse. And when I do that experiment on myself, the opposite happens. But it's very hard to do experiments in nutrition. Sciences tend to break down when they can't do, when the test part is too difficult to do. So, if you can do the test easily, then you get your hypothesis, you can do the test. And if you misinterpret the test, somebody else is gonna do the test and tell you you screwed up and there's immediate negative feedback. Yeah. In nutrition, the tests, we're asking what causes chronic diseases that develop over decades. 
So the tests have to follow people or either an enormous number of people for say a decade or fewer people for multiple decades. And those tests are extremely hard to do and you have to keep the people on whatever diet you assign them. So yeah. um, it breaks down because hypothesis and tests, you can no longer do the tests. With animal nutrition, for good or bad, you can do the tests. Yes. So I would assume that it's a more functional science because a scientific method can still function. Mm -hmm. Is that uh, a correct assessment? Yes. And, and it's interesting. I had a conversation with a meat scientist professor at North Dakota State University. They uh, formulated a ration to emulate the NHANES data for average American diet and um, used you know, 60 day old female pigs that were genetically similar and the attending veterinarian stopped the study early because it was inhumane what was happening to the pigs. Now pigs are an accepted model for human nutrition. Interesting, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we could talk about animal models and we probably, yeah. I don't know how technical you wanna get. Um, we can we can cycle back because we've already t dropped a lot of breadcrumbs that I want to pick up, okay. um, um, but I'll just leave this on top of that. And it is that in order to improve our understanding of protein nutrition for humans, we have to essentially use animal models. And in fact, uh, working group. International Protein Nutrition for Humans accepts using swine if you can't find ileal cannulated humans to volunteer for the study. So, um, you know, you can do things with animals you can't do with humans, the point that you made. And, um, but you, you, you use the phrase calorie restricted diets. There used to be another name for those. And there's been, to my knowledge, one sort of most famously known or infamous, depending, known study of calorically restricted diets. And there's, there were some fascinating observations that came from that study. Could you sort of go along that subject for a while? Because we're told, like you say, eat less, exercise more. That's the secret. But when they did that, doesn't seem like it worked real well. Yeah, and that's the, so the study you're talking about, uh, the, the other name for calorie-restricted diets, they used to be known as semi-starvation diets. So the idea was if you wanted to get someone to lose a significant amount of weight, you basically cut their calories in half. And... Um, you know, dietitians nowadays will say, well, don't don't go that severe. Like they try to eat 500 calories a day less because 500 calories a day less will uh, be a pound of fat a week because a pound of fat is, a, you know, for their intents and purposes worth 3,500 calories. Uh, so that's kind of thinking. But far back as the 1970s, uh, the research we're talking about semi-starvation diets where you basically told people to eat about half of the calories they used to be eating. So the study you're talking about uh, was done in the early 1940s by the University of Michigan nutritionist Ansel Keys. And I discussed this at length in uh, the case for keto because the idea is we're supposed to eat less and lose weight and there aren't going to be any negative there aren't gonna be any complications or side effects of this eating less thing. 
Uh, same with exercising more. Um, so in the early 1940s, uh, as World War II was raging, Ansel Keys and his colleagues at the University of Minnesota wanted to address this question of how to deal with famine, because the assumption was that when we liberated Europe, and uh, Eastern Europe in particular, of assuming we did, which, which we did, uh, we would be confronted with people who had been starving for several years, and they wanted to know how to understand the metabolic uh, phenomenon they were witnessing and how best to refeed these people. And so they took 34 conscientious objectors, and they, some of them, most of them were lean, because most people were lean in the 1940s. There were a few that were overweight and one that was borderline obese, and they put them on calorie-restricted diets, uh, 1,600 calories a day, which is basically what men are told advised to eat in weight loss diets today. And uh, they were, by all definitions, a healthy diet. They were supposed to mimic the foods that uh, Eastern Europeans might be eating in a famine, but that's what we're told to eat today. So it was uh, some tubers, uh, potatoes or turnips and green vegetables and a little bit of very lean meat. and. Um, 1,600 calories a day, and it's they did lose weight. So they lost a couple pounds uh, a week for the first uh, 12 weeks, and then it or the first six weeks, I forget what it was, and then it slowed down to about a half a pound a week. Um, but the side effect was, if you feed someone a semi-starvation, calorie-restricted diet, you're semi-starving them, right? They were hungry all the time. They were obsessed with hunger. They thought about food constantly. They wrote about food in their journals. They dreamt about food. Some of them, one of them chewed 40 pieces of gum a day to, in response to this hunger, they had to, uh, to institute a buddy system because they couldn't allow these people to leave the confines of the laboratory without, you know, assuming they were going to cheat on the diet. And um, some of them, manifested what they called semi-starvation neurosis, and that was the sort of general response, and others went into semi-starvation psychosis. Two of them tried to mutilate themselves to get out of the study. One of them actually successfully cut off two fingers. Um, several of them ended up in the hospital because of their psychotic breaks. Uh, then when they were done with the study, they refed them, right? Turned out you couldn't just let them eat as much as they wanted because some of these would, would eat 10,000 calories a day or more and get sick. So they had to slowly refeed them um, and build them back up. But even then, as they built back up, they were still eating six, 10,000 calories a day. And they all ended up with significantly more fat on their bodies than they started with. Um, mm. They called it uh, post-starvation uh, obesity. And my pithy point in the book is we've all been there. You know, there's this concept of yo-yo dieting that the nutritionists talk about. And the nutritionists, they don't read the history. This isn't what they're taught to do. They have no idea of what we're talking about because this isn't part of their education. And so yo-yo dieting is a basically you go on the diet, you starve yourself. And then when you start to fall off the diet, you binge eat and end up fatter than you started. And then you have to repeat the process. And they think it's a psychological issue that's specific to obese individuals, people who suffer, struggle with obesity. But the point is, this is how all humans respond to semi-starvation. Mm -hmm. And the question should be not why 
you know, can you make a person with obesity thin by semi-starving them? The question is, why is it that a person with obesity can only be made thin by semi-starving them? Or is there another way to do it, yeah. such as restricting carbohydrates? And is there a way to do that in the absence of hunger? And, and that key point tied with the observation from that study, plus I'm, I'm sure I'm lacking the details, but apparently one of the criticisms for a restricted carbohydrate diet is the possibility of anorexia. Yeah, back in uh, 1971, the uh, so Atkins had popped. Uh, Robert Atkins, New York cardiologist, who became famous because of his book *Atkins Diet Revolution*, um, popularized this diet in the late 1960s and early 1970s. So the idea is is a very interesting observation. The base of it, which is if you're not eating at all, if you're fasting, your body is getting fuel from your body and your body is composed of protein and fat. So you're living off protein and fat and your metabolic responses are that of a body that's living off of, you know, a little bit of protein and, and however much fat it can get a hold of. Um, if you're eating a carbohydrate restricted diet, your body is living off protein and fat. This time exogenous from outside, from what you're feeding yourself instead of your own body. Um, so the metabolic responses are the same. And um, Atkins read that literature and thought, that's interesting. I wonder what happens if I don't eat carbohydrates. And he stopped eating them and he lost weight. He had a conversion experience. He put his patients on it. They had conversion experiences. He wrote a diet book about it. The diet book was the fastest selling book in history and outsold the Bible for some significant period of time. And the medical establishment was horrified because Atkins was pushing precisely the opposite of the diet that was be becoming accepted as a diet to prevent heart disease. So we were beginning to be told to eat low fat diets by the American Heart Association and Atkins was pushing a high fat diet. So a cardiologist who from New York who knew Atkins and didn't like him and a nutritionist who worked for the American Heart Association wrote an article for the American Heart Association and it was published in, in the uh, JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association. And it was um, uh, a critique of the Atkins diet and it was under the, uh, you know, the, the uh, guise of, uh, being a, a committee publication, and they listed the side effects of a ketogenic diet, a low carbohydrate, high fat diet that induces ketosis. And one of the side effects was anorexia, which is loss of appetite. And it just shows you the kind of bias that you get in this field, because if you have an obese individual who you think should eat less in order to lose weight, and you have a diet that induces a loss of appetite and a reduction in food consumption, you would think that would be a good thing. And instead, it's being presented as a reason not to eat this radical dietary approach. And that kind of bias, when I was doing my reporting, that kind of bias is endemic to the field of nutrition. It's one of the reasons when I talk about these people being not really understanding science. They don't understand that the job is to interpret the evidence without bias. And humans are programmed, though we're 
Francis Bacon said this 400 years ago, we're programmed to see what we want to see. But the job of being a scientist is to fight that programming at every step along the way. And it, it, it continues the maybe the opposite of that observation is if you think about what you would do to have a big appetite being the conventional advice for what to do to lose weight. Yeah, eat less exercise. Eat less, exactly. That's the um Yeah, I used to when I lecture, I say to the audience, imagine tonight that we're having a uh you've been invited to come to this lecture, and after the lecture there's a feast the the advisor's house, the um we've gotten the 10 best chefs in the neighborhood um in the city that I'm lecturing in to come to the house and it's like Top chef on steroids, and it's going to be the best food you've ever seen, uh, best food you've ever tasted, uh, course after course, plate after plate, enormous quantities. Bring your appetite. That's what the invitation says. Bring your appetite. What would you do that day to assure that when you got to the professor's house tonight for this feast, you can eat as much food as humanly possible when you want to. And the answer is pretty obvious. And it's, it's not, there's no debate here. It's you're going to eat less during the day, right? I mean, that's what anyone would do. If I was going to eat snacks, I'm going to skip my snacks. I'm going to eat a smaller lunch. I'm going to, and then I'm going to exercise. You know, if I was going to work out, I'm going to work out longer and harder. Maybe I'm going to say, look, it's only five miles from where I live and work to the professor's house. Maybe I'll walk. So if I walk, I'll build up, work an, up appetite. an appetite. Yes. And those concepts, the concept of working up an appetite through exercise and physical activity, which we're As obvious as could be, I mean, in the pre-World War II years, research would write about, look, the reason tailors, or excuse me, lumberjacks have bigger uh, uh, appetites than tailors is because the lumberjacks are working hard all day long, calling, cutting wood and sawing wood and cutting down trees, and the tailors are sitting working a sewing machine. So it's reasonable to think that if you take the tailor and you make him work for two hours a day as a lumberjack, he's going to... Yeah start to develop the appetite of a lumberjack. And it's because the body's trying to replenish the energy that's been expended. But just the fact that the two things any normal human being would do to uh, lose weight, uh, excuse me, that any normal human being would do to make sure they are as hungry as humanly possible, are the two things we tell people who suffer from obesity to, do lose, to lose weight should tell us that there's something wrong with the way we think about this problem. Which we, is, again, what I'm examining in the case for keto. If we put a basset on a treadmill, we won't turn it into a greyhound. Right? No, we turn We're, it into an emaciated basset hound. Yeah. An emaciated, or, angry basset hound. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and in animal husbandry specifically, I heard this phrase in around horses, that there are some horses that we call easy keepers. Right, you don't have to feed them as much of the higher cost ration for them to maintain their body condition. Um, there are other animals you have to feed more, and some of this is breed difference, so genetic things. Your point about le that obese people are not just 
fat, lean people. Maybe I've missed that or, or, or maybe. Um, so we have some people who were born lean, never had to worry about it, who've been advising people who aren't. Um, and so if we could just, if you could just talk a little bit about this, again, we're not the same. Um, well, so that's, yeah, let me, <clears throat> we have this hypothesis, Newton's law of obesity, right? It's caused by taking more calories than you expend. So the difference between a, a person who gets fatter as they get older and a person who stays lean is that the person who gets fatter as they get older takes in more calories than he or she expends and the person who stays lean doesn't. Okay, that's the fundamental bedrock assumption here. So the difference between these two people is not physiological or metabolic or enzymatic or hormonal that the person who's getting fatter has some, you know, uh, issue with the accumulation of body fat. The difference between these two individuals is how much they eat and exercise. Okay, and it's interesting because if you think about it, if uh, we pitch two kids who were both say 14 years old and one grew to be six foot five and 200 pounds and the other one grew. So let's say at 14, they're both five eight. And one grows to be six foot five and 200 pounds and the other one grows to be five foot 10 and 170 pounds. So they, they have a uh, you know, 30 pound difference in seven inch. Are you describing the two of us? Is that what you're? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyway, the point is you would never think that it has anything to do with how much they exercise, even though the one who grew to be six foot five weighed 30 pounds more than the one who stayed at five, never got over 5'10", you would, you know, the assumption is it's all hormonal. It's about growth hormone and, and the various growth factors. And if the one who grew to be six foot five is hungrier than the one who got to 5'10", well, that's clear because it he was bigger. He needed more food to fuel that growth, so he should be hungrier. But if they both get to 510 only, and one gets to 200, one stays at 170, the assumption is the difference is how much they ate and exercised, how much they ate. So there's this assumption that the only difference between lean people and people who become fat is their eating behavior for all intents and purposes. They can, one, the lean people can match their expenditure and the people who become fat cannot. And it's the lean people, the way they think. So this is, remember I said science begins with an observation that contra is contrary to your expectations. So if your expectation is that uh, a healthy diet is fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, legumes, lean meat, you know, fish, um, and that's what you're eating and you remain lean, there's no conflict with your expectations. There's no observation to be had that allows you to advance the science. And the assumption is, and this is natural, uh, the cognitive uh, uh, behavioral psychologist, Richard Kahneman called this, what you see is all there is, why see Addy? So what you see if you're lean and eating a healthy diet is I mean, I'm eating a healthy diet. So my hypothesis is, Everybody would be lean if they ate this conventional healthy diet. And if people aren't lean, it must be because they're not eating the diet. I mean, they're lying to me or they're, you know, this is the issue we discussed before. Um, it's lean people who tend to give dietary advice. It's lean people like Michael Pollan, the uh, 
they appreciate a you know the best-selling author who says eat food not too much mostly plants if you're lean and you're eating what you think of as not too much you assume that everyone could be lean if they eat not too much it's phrase that has no meaningful definition, but it basically means what lean people think they eat. Mm-hmm. So we've had this problem for going on a hundred years now, where it's lean people don't understand what it's like to fatten easily. That's a phrase I took from the 1950s diet books, because they don't fatten easily. In fact, some of them can eat enormous amount of food and will stay lean. You know, they we all know people like that, but we don't shame them because they remain lean. Um, so these people, without any understanding of what gaining weight is like, of what becoming fatter inexorably, regardless of what you do to try and stop it, of having uh, the, the wonderful writer, um, Roxanne Gay, in her memoir, Hunger, Dealing with Obesity, she uses the phrase, her unruly body. She cannot control her body's fat accumulation, and she grows to be massively obese. Um, The lean people can't understand that because their bodies don't do that. They're different. And that's one of the points I'm making the case for keto. They're not us. They're not people who get fatter as they get older. They're people who stay lean, and they can't tell us what to eat because if we eat what they eat, we'll either be fatter or hungrier or both. Just like you could imagine those two kids, you know, that we started with, they're both five foot eight. If the one who grows to six foot five eats exactly what the one who only grows to five ten is, he's still going to grow to be six foot five. He's just going to be hungrier all the time. Right? Mm -hmm. It's just, we've got the causality wrong. We've been taking our advice from the wrong people. I, I, I remember a study that you wrote about probably all the way back in Good Calories, Bad Calories, where you talked about rats that um, were uh, – how was it? That these were, these were t- lab animals that were bred, selected to become obese – or no, this I'm getting them confused. There was one. Well, let me let me yeah. here, let me clarify because I know what you're talking about. Um, beginning in the late 1930s, so the the field of obesity was catalyzed in the late 1930s. Obesity research. In order to do meaningful research, you need to be able to create obesity, <laughs> create the disease you want to study. Um, so that's what know, they've been doing for the last 50 years. Okay, good. All right. Yeah. Well, in humans, they've been doing it for the. Well, they've been the, yeah, pretty much. Um, Anyway, uh, late 1930s, uh, create animal models of obesity. The f- very first one is uh, you lesion a part of the brain called the ventromedial hypothalamus, and the animal grows uh, reproducibly obese. This was pioneered at a laboratory in Chicago. The second major one was something called the OBOB mouse, which was a genetic mutant that got uh, uh, reproducibly obese, and then it was found at the Jackson Laboratories in Maine, and you could breed these mutants with other mice and eventually get a strain of these mutants called OBOB. So um, OB, of course, stands for obese. 
And since then, now there are probably hundreds of these animal models, including surgical and genetic and, you know, uh, even dietary models. But what they all have in common is a fascinating fact, which is um, if you semi-starve them, well, if you fix their calories so they can't eat any more than lean animals, they'll get obese anyway. The Obi-Obi mouse, which is famous for, this was a mouse that led to the discovery of the hormone leptin. The Obi-Obi mouse, there are experiments that have been published where the researcher who pioneered this, this research and won the Lasker Award, shared the Lasker Award for the leptin discovery back in the 80s showed that he could literally half starve these animals. So you measure exactly how much food a lean animal is eating, same breed, same stock, except for this mutation. And then you give half of that food to the obese animal and the animal grows up to be obese anyway. So you have an animal that's obese even when literally half starved. Now the question is how can you blame the obesity on the animal eating too much or exercising too little? And I'd argue it can't be done. Actually, this researcher Douglas Coleman tried to do it. You try to assume that somehow it's more efficiently processing the fat. But the easiest way to do it is say, look, the animal is you know, it's not that it has a hungry brain, which is the title of a misguided book on this subject. The animal has hungry fat cells, the fat, or greedy fat cells. The fat cells are, for however they're doing it, are pulling in fat and they're not letting it out. And they'll do it even if you half starve the animal. It's not energy, about how much it, Energy yeah. partitioning is something we talk about in that discipline that I mentioned earlier. Exactly. Um, well, uh, and it's got to be the case because you know it in... in in animal husbandry, because you're when you're breeding leader or fatter cuts of beef, you're changing how the animal partitions fuel, not how much it eats and exercises. Probably doing a combination of all of those, but it. it so um, an, a, another key point, because you started, I think, one of the working titles, or at least an idea that you disregarded earlier for the case for keto is uh, something about fad diets. And I want people to understand just how far back into history this goes versus our conventional wisdom. Okay. So, yeah, I want, I was actually, I kind of regret not having used this title now, but I wanted to call the book at first In Defense of Fad Diets. And one of the chapters is called In Defense of Fad Diets. Um, what do I mean by that? I was had been asked to do an interview with a British broadcasting company, a BBC documentary on fad diets. And they had asked me to do it because my first book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, which is the diet delusion in the UK, was the, um, the first, maybe still the only history ever written of obesity and chronic disease and nutrition research. Um, and the implications towards diet. And so the question they wanted to ask me, and the, the interviewer was a Oxford University or Cambridge University geneticist who studied gen, you know, the genes of obesity. And so he wanted to know why fad diets are so popular. And they briefed me before we started filming. So why are you know so many physicians promoting fad diets and why are the best-selling diet books fad diets? And I hadn't really asked that question that way. And as I was thinking about it, it was—it suddenly struck me that it was obvious. The 
It's because the conventional wisdom doesn't work. Okay, so we've established that we have obesity and diabetes epidemics. We have more and more people who are, can't control their weight or their blood sugar. They're told what to do from the time they're old enough to read a book. And it doesn't help. And if it doesn't work, if eating less and exercising more and eating a low fat diet, mostly plants and not too much and avoiding processed foods and all of that doesn't work, all these sort of mishigas of the conventional wisdom, then what you're going to do is try something else. If you've got, you know, the motivation, if you have any energy left after fighting and failing for 10 or 20 or however many years. So you try something else. As soon as you try something else, you're pursuing what the uh, establishment considers a fad diet because it's not what they're telling you to do. And the point I made, one point I make in the book is we wouldn't be here if what they were telling us to do worked. We have all tried to eat less and exercise and many of us got fatter anyway. And the ones who got fatter anyway are the ones who are now doing, looking at fad diets. Um, this particular fad diet, low carbohydrate, high fat, ketogenic diet, again, it's, you know, paleo is a version of it, uh, Atkins, that's Atkins was your ketogenic diet, uh, protein power and sugar busters in South Beach and Ducan and you name it virtually. Uh, every best-selling diet book that isn't now vegan or vegetarian has invariably been low carb, high fat. Don't eat carbohydrates is a message. Carbohydrates are fattening for those of us who fatten easily. And it goes back to 1825. The most famous book ever written about food is was a book called The Physiology of Taste, written by a Frenchman named Jean-Antoine Briat Savarin, who spent 25 years. He was a lawyer who dropped out of the law so he could sort of write about and study his passion, which was gastronomy, the science of you know eating and food. And um, Physiology of Taste has been in print for 195 years now, which other than the Bible, I don't know that many nonfiction books that can make that claim. And Briat um, Savarin said, look, I've had in, I've fought my own gut my whole life. He said his paunch was his redoubtable enemy. And I've had interviews with over 500 people who suffer from obesity and I've been at meals with them and I've talked to them about it. And they all say to me, you know, look, I can't live without potatoes, or I can't live without rice, or I can't live without bread. And uh, he says, look, you fatten animals by feeding them what he called farinaceous foods, which are, you know, grains, and sugar makes everything worse. In 1825, sugar was still hard to come by and very expensive, so people weren't drinking three Coca-Colas a day. Um, even sugary, you know, like a sugary lemonade was something that, that was very expensive and a treat. Anyway, so that was it. Uh, Briat Savaran concludes that um, the way to lose weight is to give up more or less rigid abstinence from the carbohydrate-rich foods in the diet, uh, grains, starches, and then sugars, which make everything. He said, avoid beer like the plague. Yeah. And, and today, uh, yeah, today yeah, I, th I think today in the United States, 60% of our calories almost come from grains, added sugars, or added plant lipids, those three categories combined. Yeah, it's, you know, we've, 
I, you know, again, it's, um, I do these podcasts and it sounds insane when we talk about it and we can make a compelling argument that, that the research community and the dietitians and the nutritionists went off the rails. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm writing a book about diabetes now and what I'm trying to explain is why is it that until the discovery of insulin, the accepted dietary therapy for controlling diabetes and what we now call type 2 diabetes, which is 95% of the people, 90 to 95% of the cases was basically a zero carbohydrate, high fat diet. They called it the animal diet throughout the 19th century. And then insulin comes in. And now as of 1970, diabetics are being told to eat even more carbohydrates than healthy people, even though the one thing we can say for absolute certainty about the disease is that the people who eat it can't metabolize carbohydrates. The people who have the disease can't metabolize carbohydrates because of their problems with insulin signaling. So it's sort of, there's a kind of insanity out there, but we always have to remember that this compelling as we seem, we also appear to the establishment to be fringe cases. like. Mm -hmm. We're the boys who are saying the emperor has no clothes. But instead of being, you know, in the fairy tale, the boy is celebrated for pointing out that the emperor is negative, is naked. But in reality, the boy, you know, the boy would be bundled up by the police, hustled away, put in an asylum, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think that some of the points, and I've had people who mentored me in my disciplines ask me from the audience after I've given presentations where I attempt to cover some of this, how could we have gotten to this point? I've had other former colleagues say after reading good calories, bad calories, I couldn't get this kind of work published in the agronomy journal, right? The, the, there's been this separation so much so between disciplines that we like to think everybody is as rigorous as we hope we are. And it's hard to understand just how that is not the case when it comes to human nutrition and health. Yeah. And I, it's a tough argument to make. Um, the, uh, Especially now in the age of COVID, because in the age of COVID, we hear over and over again, trust the scientists, trust the scientists, trust the science. And in general, it is a very good idea to trust the scientists and trust the science. Not that they don't get things wrong, but they're the... Their education is... Well, I've quoted this line in every book um, I've written, including the ones on physics. Um, Richard Feynman, the Nobel laureate physicist, cult figure, um, said the first principle of science is you must not fool yourself and you're the easiest person to fool. The idea being that you're so likely to be wrong that you're supposed to have relentless self-criticism and everything you say, but the problem is that's not how you succeed in the world of science anymore. The way you succeed in the world of science is first of all, you believe what your mentors believe because then your mentor will like you and think mm -hmm. you're smart, right? 
Um, <laughs> that's classic group think. People don't think you tend to, like I, Peter, I think you're smart because you believe what I believe, right? Yeah, of course. Yes. You know, and yes. I have trouble with the people who disagree with me. And it's hard to imagine that they're smart because I can't see how they came to different conclusions. So that's classic group think. We surround ourselves with people who agree with us. Mm-hmm. And then we want to move up in the world. And the way we move up in the world and in science as well as anything else is by producing research that supports what we believe instead of testing what we believe. Well, and certainly research that aligns with the funding sources, right? There's that as well. And and in this case, I made this point in... um, my first book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, and it was made to me by leading figures in the world of cholesterol research. Actually, one of them who made it wrote the very first textbook on cholesterol. And he said, the way you get funding is by producing research that the National Institutes of Health funding agents agree with. And they said the NIH is as much a pusher of belief systems as any industry that has a product to sell. Mm-hmm. So, but the problem is you go down this path we're on and you start questioning everything and then, yeah. you know, but they, and now let me bring it back to reality. <laughs> get carried away philosophically. The saving grace here is you don't have to believe a word I say or believe a word you say. You can mm-hmm. test these diets for yourself. The one thing right. that the journalists like myself and Nina Teicholz have done over the past 20 years is we've managed to get the message across to people that these eating a low carbohydrate, high fat diet will not kill you. Okay, back when I started this in 2000, the idea was you eat Atkins, you can have a heart attack before the day is done. You have your bacon, your eggs, and either they're going to have to remove your colon because of colon cancer, or you're going to have a heart attack. Uh, Clearly, that's not the case. There's been, you know, in the neighborhood of 100 clinical trials published. So over the course of a year or two, we know this diet is healthy. We don't know the long-term effects, but we don't know the long-term effects of any diet. Exactly. Yeah. So you could try it. Yeah. yeah. So if you're listening to me and thinking, yeah, another quack, try it yourself. Mm-hmm. That's all. And if you're overweight or you're struggling with your blood sugar, blood pressure, you could try it and see what happens. And the reason I wrote the case for keto is so people could understand that. Mm-hmm. And then when they do try it, they'll do it right. So they won't short shrift their opportunity to get healthy eating this way. Indeed. We, um, one last question. In all your 20 years of looking at this research, which, and you started before you could Google Scholar, right? Um, in, In all that time, what is the quality of the scientific evidence, if it exists, documenting health harm from eating too much animal source food? Uh, yeah. Okay, so how would you test this hypothesis? One way I like to think about science, and I've been thinking about science since 1982 or so, um, every experiment or observation asks a question. So you want to ask the question, 
are animal source foods bad for us? So the way to answer that question, and we can design an experiment that asks that question. So we'll take say 10,000 people and we'll randomize 5,000 of them to eat uh, a plant-based diet and 5,000 of them to eat uh, animal product rich diet and we'll control for all these other facts. So let's, because we all think sugar and white flour is bad for you. They're not gonna get any sugar and they're not gonna get any refined mm -hmm. ultra processed flour. Uh, and then we'll run it out for 10 years and see what happens. So that'll tell us. And the reason we have to randomize the subjects, right, is because people who self-select eat a vegetarian diet might be more health conscious than people who self-select eat a Atkins diet, a keto diet, or they might be a higher socioeconomic status. And so they might have better doctors. They might be more health conscious in general because they've been told that a mostly plant diet is a healthy thing to eat. You're the people who read Michael Pollan might be fundamentally different than the people who read Gary Taubes. There's certainly more of them. Um, the, uh, so we have to well, randomize. Not after this podcast. Yeah, oh, the reason, yeah, exactly. The reason for randomization is, you know, to, to control for all those differences. So somebody might be health conscious and prefer to eat a vegetable diet, but we're a plant-based diet, but we're going to randomize them to this. Anyway, you do that experiment, we'll find an answer. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of thing you have to do to find an answer. Those experiments don't exist, okay? Right. They've never been done. There've been a few, well, no, they've never been done. Pretty much that simple. Uh, what you have instead, and the defense for this, this is the field that when my physicist friend said, you should look at the stuff in public health, it's really terrible. This is what my physicist friends were thinking about. What you have instead are observational studies, cohort studies, prospective cohort studies, where you identify a collection of individuals, uh, say 130,000 nurses of the famous nurses health study run out of Harvard, and then you uh, give them a food frequency questionnaire to try and uh, get a sense for what they eat. Uh, very complex. I mean, you could see these things online. If you Google even nurses health study food frequency questionnaire, they have them all online now. Um, so you try to get some sense of what they eat and then you could follow them forward for 20 years or 30 years or 40 years and you could see who gets sick and who doesn't, okay? And then you could compare what they eat, the people who stay healthy to the people who get sick. So these are the studies we have that say people who stay healthy tend to eat mostly plant diets, okay? They were also told to eat 20 years earlier, they were told to eat mostly plant diets. So we also, another way to think about it is the healthy people are the people who are health conscious, okay? And they turned out to stay healthier. They did what they were told to do and they stayed healthier, but there's a lot of other factors that associate with health consciousness. Um, socioeconomic status, mm -hmm. you, being health conscious is something you have to be able to afford to do. When you're poor, you don't have the liberty to choose your foods based on whether or not you think they're good for you or to avoid cigarettes and uh, alcohol or to uh, live in healthy areas because you know you're living an entirely different life. Um, 
I like the way I phrased it in this Wall Street Journal essay a couple of weeks ago, which is actually one of the editors, but I'm going to take credit for it. They called it socioeconomic privilege. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so people who eat mostly planned diets tend to be wealthier. They tend to go to better colleges. They tend to be more health conscious. They tend to start off healthier to begin with. They tend to weigh less, smoke fewer cigarettes, um, and, and, engage and, in more health conscious behaviors and avoid more behaviors that are considered not healthy. And I think there's also been some demonstration of their biasing their answers on the food frequency questionnaire. Well, yeah, there's you the tell whole problem. People what, yeah, there's, you tell people what they want to hear. How often do you do the food frequency questionnaire? Yeah. What are the categories? But that's have? not even even if they had perfect information. Perfect data. Fundamentally, what you end up getting is you end up being told what health conscious people eat compared to what people who stay healthy eat compared to what people who don't. And that's an association. Mm-hmm. So you have an association between the foods being eaten and health. There are many different ways to explain the association. Once again, they're not the same people. Yeah. And they're not the same people. They are not the same people. They, there has been no randomization. There's no blinding in these studies. There's none of the rigor. This is precisely what my physicist friends meant when they said you should look at the research in public health. It's terrible because all of those checks and balances that we started off this conversation discussing, mm-hmm. all that rigor and methodical approach to assuring that you can correctly interpret what you see is completely absent from this field. And and, and because the, these people have been doing it so long, they can't admit that. Yeah. And and the other point that I make about animal nutrition in agriculture is you have periodic evaluation of how it performed. <laughs> and if it didn't meet your expectations, then you adjust. You don't blame well, the cattle. And that's a variation on experiment and test. Actually, with the cattle, because they're all the same breed and often the very same genetic stock, we can assume that they are more alike and that they eat the difference in how they eat is going to be determined by us more than them. So you can still do experiments. They might not be as rigorous as they would be if you randomized the cattle to different diets, but you can see what happens. It, it's funny because the epidemiologists like to talk about their victories in which they did not need to randomize in order to establish causation. They go all the way back to this Mm. famous study of uh, John Snow, who inaugurated the field, I think it was 1860s England with a cholera epidemic, and he identified a particular water pump as the source of the epidemic. And they said, look, he didn't need a randomized controlled trial. But the point is they shut down the pump and the cholera epidemic waned in that neighborhood. Now that could have been a coincidence, okay? But then they had decades in which to understand that cholera was a waterborne disease, infectious disease. And if they cleaned up the water or brought in bottled water or shut off pumps, the disease would go away. So you have this con, even though you didn't have the rigorous clinical try experimental randomized trial where we're going to shut down, you know, at random these 17 pumps and we're going to let these 17 pumps keep going and look at their colossus. 
um, cholera rates, you still can do the experiment. Or, or with, the magnitude of the difference. So smoking versus some of these other issues that. Well, and that's so, yes, yeah, cigarette smoking is often as an example, but smokers, lung cancer was a rare disease before cigarette smoking came along. And smokers have a, like somebody who smokes a pack or two a day as a 15 to 20 fold increased risk of the disease. So the question is, how else could you interpret that? Can we come up with an alternative explanation? Because what you want to say is, well, I think, so my hypothesis is smokers are, uh, smoking associates with such a high risk of lung cancer that I'm in a hypothesis that cigarette smoking causes lung cancer. Now the question is, can I come up with alternative hypotheses that could explain a 15 to 20 fold increased risk of this disease in smokers? Um, and the cigarette industry tried, you know, well, smokers drink a lot of coffee. Maybe it's the coffee. Maybe it's the cyclamates, yeah. Yeah, if you can come up with, but none of those hypotheses were reasonable. They didn't, you know, there was nothing. If there had been a viable alternative hypothesis, uh, I can't even think of one. But if there had been, then they would have needed a clinical trial. The point is you couldn't imagine an alternative hypothesis to fit it. So we decided that cigarettes cause lung cancer. And then eventually with smoking went down after a couple of decades, lung cancer follows because there's a long uh, incubation period. Anyway, there, that's there, the, yeah. with the meat health. You've got an observation that healthy people tend to avoid meat, but healthy people have been told to avoid meat for 50 years and they're health conscious. They do what they're told. And we also, as you outline, certainly in good calories, bad calories, I think you did it again in why we get fat and what to do about it. You go through the observations of people who had not yet gone through a nutritional transition, whose diets mm -hmm. were primarily animal, if not exclusively animal source food based, and these diseases were absent. So, and then when uh, the modern absent, we have uh, to copy that because Western doctors also tended to be absent. So, yeah. yeah, although I was, there was at least one where you cited the instance where it, it, you, you had a missionary or a physician moved into an area, none in the population or very low rate. And yeah. yet their domestics, who one would assume were eating the same thing they did, manifested these. Well, and that was that was the typical observation in these. You would have a missionary or a colonial physician working in a hospital in anywhere from French Equatorial Africa, where Albert Schweitzer worked and got his Nobel Peace Prize for his work, to... Uh, Labrador or the Arctic Circle working with Inuits or the South Pacific Islanders or pick your locale anywhere in the world. And the observation was the natives are healthier than the yeah. Westerners who were there. Then the difference was probably what they were eating. That was the assumption. When the natives started to eat like the tradition, you know, the Western diet and working as a domestic or living in town and the, you know, then they too got the same diseases at the West, heart attacks, cancer, you name it. So last thing before I give you a chance to ask me if you have any questions, but 
there's a quote about if you have to choose between your experience and a hypothesis, go with your experience. Yeah, this was um, something uh, the South African physician of this 120 physician, the, the joy of being a journalist, right? Like now with podcasts, you can learn from some very intelligent people. You get to actually call them up. Bloggers tend not to do this, which is why I have issues with their dogmatic discussions of the, you know, but as a journalist, you can actually call everyone up and talk to them. And so uh, physician uh, Martin Andre, Andre, who uh, South African and um, working in Vancouver, um, actually just north of Vancouver, British Columbia, put it to me like this. He said, you know, for 50 years, we've been taught to prescribe diet by hypothesis. So the hypothesis is I tell you to avoid saturated fat and eat a low fat diet, mostly plants and, you know, plenty of fruits and vegetables and uh, uh, animal products in moderation and uh, legumes and nuts and, and you will live longer. You'll have less heart disease. Okay, that's a hypothesis, but we get no information from that hypothesis. So if you live to be 70, if my patient lives to be 70 or 90, you have no idea what, whether the diet made a difference. Like if they lived to be 90, maybe they would have lived to be 100 in a different diet. And if they died at 70 or 60, like if I have a heart attack while we're filming this, videoing it, whatever the correct term is, we won't actually know whether my bizarre animal product rich diet killed me prematurely or kept me alive for 10 years longer than I would have otherwise lived. There's no information given. The flip side is you could take a patient who's suffers from obesity or diabetes or hypertension or pre-diabetes or is just overweight and you could tell them not to eat carbohydrates. Like give up grains, sugars and starches and replace those calories with healthy fats, naturally occurring fats, which to us include animal fats and you can watch them get healthy. They can experience themselves getting healthy. This is the conversion, we've all been through it. So you've got the hypothesis, the dietitians will tell you to eat by the hypothesis. If you eat this way, you'll live longer, trust us. And if you eat this way, you'll become healthier and no trust is needed. Okay, so what I'm arguing for in the book is people, and again, I don't know, I hope I'm going to live my, men in my father's family tend to live into their 90s. Um, men, well, the people in my mother's family tend to go crazy uh, young. So I don't know whose genes I've got. Um, I hope I got my father's. The, um, there's nobody can tell you whether the diets will make you live longer because we don't have the information for, we didn't have it for the conventional wisdom when we put the country on a low fat diet in the 1970s and 80s, it didn't exist. It's still when people argue for eating mostly plants or animal or vegan or vegetarian diets, the information that we will actually live longer doesn't exist. It doesn't exist for the low carb, high fat, ketogenic keto diet either. What we know is that if I, you can eat this way, you will get healthier. Some huge percentage of the people who eat this way get healthier. 
and then you can measure it. Your weight goes down, your blood pressure goes down, you get your blood sugar under control, your heart disease risk factors get better. Not that you can feel that, but if you want to measure that, the others you could feel. People have more energy. I mean, it's just they get, they, they, and the doctors are, you know, these doctors said the phrase you, I heard often was you, they couldn't unsee what they had witnessed in their patients. They would like to believe the conventional wisdom, but what they've seen in their patients is so compelling. And what they often, typically what they've seen in themselves is so compelling that they're going to, they're, they're, they've bought in. There's no going back. And we all hope that it's as healthy in the long run as it seems in the short run. And we could talk about deprescribing. We could talk about enjoying our meals. We could talk about, <laughs> um, well, I, I'd, I'd love to hear your story again. We're running out of time. From another uh, interview, you talked about a woman getting upset with you because she thought you were staring at her when you were fixated on her lunch. Oh, um, no, she was upset because I was staring at her lunch. Oh, okay. <laughs> this, is in the, this is back in the 80s when I worked in New York for Discover Magazine and was eating at a diner in Rye. And back when I thought that to lose weight, I had to like calorie restrict, right? So you'd go out to the diner and your friends, your lean friends would eat whatever they wanted. Well, I was boxing then too. So I was trying to, um, and I would order a, uh, yeah, like a you know, piece of the, ice cream scoop size of tuna fish in a lettuce cup and this would mm. be your lunch and yeah i was sitting in the woman at the table next to me was eating slowly of, <laughs> and i was just staring at her food because i was hungry yeah. i was always hungry when i was yeah. calorie restricting yeah remarkable um gary thank you so much i really enjoyed this Okay. So one thing I want to say about that book, the original title was How to Think About How to Eat. Okay. Um, we couldn't keep that title because of competition uh, from another book arguing the exact opposite called How to Eat. But I wrote the book to, to help people think about how to approach their weight, diabetes problems, and think about it in a way that's productive, not just embrace low carb, high fat foods and understand how to do that and how to eat this way, but how to think about it. So when, you know, one of the key points in the book that again, these physicians hammered home to me is eating healthy takes work, just like being a good cook and cooking at home takes work and it takes practice and it takes repetition. And the more you do it, the better you do at it. And the problem is we've been taught to eat healthy incorrectly. So the idea is you're supposed to go on this, eat less, exercise more, all these things that don't work, mostly plans for most people doesn't work. And so what I want to do with this book is not just teach people, give them the sort of basic thinking on how to approach this to solve, like reverse these chronic diseases, but then hammer home the fact that, you know, you sustain it because you want to stay healthy. Like I don't eat carbs because I crave, you know, I, it's, there's no religion here. I just want to stay healthy. And I know that I'm healthy eating this way, but I've also had an enormous amount of practice over 20 years. So I know how to do it to make it work. And, and uh, Sue Wolver, a physician in Virginia said to me, you know, you, you don't get good at anything without practice. When you teach your kids, you're always hammering on practice, 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 repetition, getting better. You don't expect to be, my 12 year old is obsessed with basketball. 
I'm a, you know, I'm always dragging them out for shooting practice and like form, form, footwork, you know. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, when the kid's at his peak, he looks like Steph Curry. Like, I'd like to keep that going. <laughs> I mean, you know, got other issues. But anyway, that's what it's about. It's about Michael Pollan says, you know, who believes that you can be healthy just eating mostly plants and not too much. I think he's wrong, but he, we both agree that if you want to eat healthy, you, it takes work. It, where you shop, what you buy, thinking about what you're buying. If you want to be a vegetarian or a vegan, it takes a lot of work learning how to eat that way that's healthy. Mm -hmm. And so does this. The difference is this will actually make you healthy. So the feedback is phenomenal, provided you know what you're doing. That's, that's the argument, so. The book is worth reading as well as owning. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you, Peter.